Well, good morning, guys. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, if you got your Bibles, open them up to chapter 13, and we're going to f- do a flyby through 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Um, I know you think it can't be done, but it can. So we're going to cover a lot of territory. We're going to look at some pretty amazing stories. We're, we're getting to the meat of the, the, the book right now where a lot of the things we're familiar with are beginning to happen and things that we're... Um, Stories that we know pretty well, uh, we're going to look at and maybe see some things we haven't seen before, but uh, this is a great section, and, and I, of everything we've covered, this section is going to have real application to my life and to your life. Believe me, it's, it's, it's been heavily applied to my life over the last week, just, to, just in preparation for this. So let me pray for us, and we're going to dig into it. Lord, we do thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your presence in our lives, how you are operating behind the scenes in ways that we can't see. Father, you are uh, working miracles that sometimes we don't even recognize as miracles. And and Lord, I I just pray that you would continue to open our eyes to see your activity all around us, not just in our localized lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our church, but Lord, in our community, in this country, and even around the world. And speaking of that, Father, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but we pray for Israel right now, that we pray with everything going on over there that your will would be done. Uh, We pray for the peace of Israel. We pray for the protection of Israel. And Lord, uh, we know that Israel is near and dear to your heart and uh, they're not a perfect nation. They're fallen like everyone else. And yet, Lord, you have set them apart. You have plans for them. And so we pray that your will would be done over there. Father, we give you this time together and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at a a lot of material, if this uh, presentation will work. There we go. All right. I've titled this one, this is the way my brain works. Um, I look for patterns. Uh, And so in this, I've seen patterns. And and they're patterns I haven't really ever seen before. And it's, you're going to see bread, you're going to see meat, water, and lots of wine. And this is not a typo. Um, It's amazing to me when you read these stories how much the Israelites whine. Uh, God does these amazing things for them. And you're familiar with the story. Uh, He's going to part the Red Sea. He's going to defeat the Egyptians. He's going to do some incredible stuff. And all throughout, they're going to whine. And why I say this is going to be highly applicable is because that's the story of my life. God does so many incredible things for me, and I can whine quicker, easier than anybody I know. I I can find something to whine about in just about any occasion, Uh, and and I don't thank God enough. I I don't praise God enough for what he's done. I can blame him for everything, but I'm not quick to praise him for all that he's done, and we're going to see that in this story. So you're going to see all this imagery that if, if you don't look carefully, you just fly right past it. Uh, and again, I've not really seen it before. And, and yet, all of it has meaning. So you're going to see the Passover lamb. We're going we're to look at that. Uh, and, and I think most of us have some semblance of an idea of what that's all about. Chapter 13, you're going to see unleavened bread. So you already see a pattern here. You've got meat. You've got bread. Then you're going to have water, the, the parting of the Red Sea in chapter 14. You go on, chapter 15, bitter water made sweet. So you have these, uh, all these elements that if you boil them down to their bare essence, what are they? They're sustenance. 
their provision. They're what keeps the Israelites alive. Chapter 16, he's going to provide bread in the morning, manna. Then he's going to provide quail, again, meat. So all throughout these chapters, 13 through 17, you see these things happening. And again, chapter 17, he's going to provide water from a rock. Well, why is this important? Because all of it's happening according to the will of our sovereign, almighty God. All of it has meaning behind it. It's not just happenstance. It's not just God willy-nilly doing anything. There's a meaning and a purpose behind everything. It's interesting if you, again, look closely, you see that he commands Moses to take that wooden staff, that shepherd's staff, and with it, he's going to part the sea, and he's going to make dry ground. That staff has been used a lot in all the plagues, and now it's going to be used to do this mighty act of deliverance. Well, with that same staff, he's going to use it to part a rock, a dry, crusty rock, and produce what? Water. There are many um, commentators who believe this is imagery pointing to the cross, and it may be. Uh, We don't know. I don't know that, you know, Moses saw it that way. I don't think Moses had a clue about the cross. But we do see this using of this simple staff to do some pretty incredible things. A little bit later on, we see God tell him to use a piece of wood and throw it into the water that's bitter and make it sweet. And how God is intervening and how God, the God of creation, is using very simple things, wooden staff, piece of wood, to accomplish great things on behalf of his people. He's meeting their needs. Over and over again, he meets their needs. He, he calls causes bread to literally fall from heaven. We don't know exactly how this happens, but the passage describes manna, this this bread-like substance that literally appeared out of nowhere with the dew. And the Israelites were fed on it for 40 years. Again, provision, God's sustenance. And then he caused quail to literally just fly in and land on the ground where they could just pick the quail up. If you're a bird hunter, that kind of takes all the fun out of it, right? You just walk, walk over and pick it up. For me, that would be better because uh, I rarely hit what's in the air. But God is providing for all their needs. So all of this is, it's a symbol of God's provision. Their need, God's provision. And that's important because we're going to see what's their response to that. The response is complaining. Over and over again, from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17 and then beyond, you're going to see these people complain. And yet God shows grace in the face of what their ingratitude. Think about how many times God has continued to show you grace, even when you show him ingratitude. I don't like my job. Uh, I, don't, I don't like my house. I don't like this. I don't like that. Um, you know, I, I complained for several weeks in front of you guys about my broken down cars. And then yesterday I had to call an um, electrician to come out and fix some broken down electricity. And I, I I didn't like that either. I don't like when that happens, and I complain about it. I may not direct, directly complain to God, but he most certainly gets to hear it, right? I'm just grousing out, out for anybody who can hear, and there's nobody there except who? Him, and he gets to hear it. And I, and I can almost sense God saying, hey, I gave you this house. I help you pay for this house. I, I have given you so much, and then you're going to complain when a light switch doesn't work when this fails to work. And yet he keeps showing me grace after grace after grace after grace. And he blesses me. And yet I can get bitter even when I'm blessed. 
we several weeks ago talked about the fact that blessings don't always show up as great things. Blessings can come in the form of tragedy. Blessings can come in the form of things that you don't personally like, but they become blessings if you give God time to work it all out and show you his power and show you that he's there. And yet so often we just continue to show bitterness and he keeps pouring out that unmerited favor, the mercy and grace, and we don't deserve it. See, you and I, if, if, if we share this in common, that we're Christ followers, that we've placed our faith in Christ, his unmerited favor didn't stop at salvation. It, it's, you're receiving it every day. Because guess what you do every day? You still continue to sin against him every day. It may not be egregious. It may not be as bad as it was when you were pre-salvation, but you still sin because we have sin natures, and yet God continues to show you unmerited favor. He never gets to the point where he folds his arm, looks down, and goes, I'm done. You're toast. I give up. I never should have saved you in the first place. That, that never is a risk that we face because God is always showing us what grace, mercy, favor that we don't deserve. And yet the Israelites complain. Here's just a, a summary of some of their complaints. And I want, you to, I want you to see yourself in these and stop and think, have I ever done this with God? And again, you may not use these words. You may not be maybe as blunt, but listen to what they say. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Now, when did they say this? Chapter 14, right before God parts the waters. What's their problem? They can't cross the water and the Egyptians are bearing down on them. So their response is, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough grace for us in Egypt? Do you catch the sarcasm here? It's not even veiled sarcasm. I mean, they're, they're unhappy. What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. This is some pretty dissatisfied people, right? Uh, we're not sure how this gets communicated. It's probably through the elders speaking on behalf of the people, but nobody in the camp is happy with their circumstance. What's their circumstance? Standing at the, the bank of the river, and they've got who? The Egyptians just coming down hard and fast, chariots, soldiers, spears, arrows, and they're in a panic. And their memory is not quite right. You know, they, they can't really remember how bad things were. And really what they're saying is not even what they said back in Egypt. They're, they're kind of paraphrasing their own words. And yet we know that they're not happy. Well, it goes on in chapter 15. They come to a, a place called Marah, and the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Marah, which means bitter. They named the place bitter. They're bitter, water's bitter, and they actually named the place that, which is not really a commemoration of anything good, right? They didn't name it sweet, they named it bitter. And it goes on, it says, the people complained and turns against Moses, against Moses. now what are we gonna drink? Now what are we gonna do? Man, I can't tell you how many times I've said it in my life. Now what am I supposed to do, Lord? Why did you do this? I just got my car fixed, now my electricity goes bad. Why are you doing this? Why does this have to happen? Why, 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 why me, why now? Why not my next-door neighbor? I, speaking of my next-door neighbor, um, I'm somebody who likes to try to fix everything, and so 
we have a pool. We put that pool in 17 years ago, long before I went into ministry. And my kids are all grown and my grandkids use it occasionally, but mostly I just try to keep it clean and I spend money on it. Um, And so it wasn't cleaning properly. So I knew that the filters had not been cleaned in a long time. It has DE filters. So I decided yesterday, my day off, I'm going to clean those filters, which I hate to do. It's messy. And I knew they were going to probably have to be replaced, which is expensive. So I go out there, I take the top of the thing off and yeah, they're just totally corroded. They're in bad shape, but I have to wait for the pool supply company to open. So I stop that project and I go to try to work on the electricity. So I'm in the middle of working on that. I get a text from my wife. She says, do we have a leak somewhere? Because our next door neighbor says her barn's flooding with water and it's coming from our backyard. And I went, I forgot to turn the pool off. So the pool kicked on and that filter was just sitting there wide open and it's just like a fountain and it's all going into her barn. And my neighbor is not the friendliest person to begin with. And so she's not happy and she's texting my wife and my wife's texting me. And again, I am not a happy camper because I have to run out there, shut it all down and then go apologize to her, which took everything in me to do. See guys, I, I, now what Lord, what else can go wrong? That, that was my attitude. I'm bitter. I'm not a happy camper. We're all prone to do this, guys. And we see it in the Israelites. And we're seeing it while God is doing great things for them. It's not like while they're still back in Egypt and they're suffering, it's they've been delivered. Things are getting great. God's shown some pretty amazing things. And time and time again, they complain. Chapter 16, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. What do they say every time? You're trying to kill us. Now, who do they direct it at? Moses and Aaron. They know better seemingly to direct these complaints at God. So they just direct them at the messengers of God. It doesn't really change anything, right? They're still complaining about God, but they're complaining about now we don't have anything to eat. What have we seen over and over again? Bread, water, bread, water, meat, quail, manna. God has been providing. God has been working on them. God has been providing for them. And it just continues all the way into chapter 17. There was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses, give us water to drink. Tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, our livestock with thirst? You see a pattern here? They're not the most creative complainers in the world. It's the same thing over, are you trying to kill us? What's interesting about all of this is that if you truly believe in the sovereignty of God, what does God know about every one of these occasions where they found reason to complain? He had planned it. They didn't get to this place called Mara, which they named bitter, and and suddenly there's water there, but it's bitter water, and God God went, oh, I had no idea that was going to happen. Golly, I meant for you to turn left back at the oasis. No, he sent them there. That's exactly where he wanted them. And yet, what do they do? They complain. Why me? Why now? What, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to kill me? See, they're free. They've been set free, literally set free. And they're totally free to do what? Complain. So are you. God has freed you from slavery to sin. He has redeemed you. He has 
guaranteed your future, your eternity, and you're free to complain, and you do it just like I do on a pretty regular basis about anything and everything. No more slavery to sin, no more slavery to Egypt. They're not living there anymore. They've long left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They've had their firstborn spared when God passed over their homes because of the blood on the doorpost and lintel. He's blessed them with riches. We saw last week that they went to their neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, and said, we need your gold, your silver, your jewelry, and your precious fabrics, and they just handed it over. God has been blessing them and blessing them. He's miraculously delivered them. Now, we're, I'm taking these chapters in, in all their context. So most of this complaining has been after they go through the water, after they've left the land, after God has delivered them after he's destroyed the Egyptian army when the waters crashed down on them. And this is how they repay the Lord, by complaining. Not once, but multiple times. This is how they show their gratitude. And again, I'm not trying to beat you up or beat me up, but I just want to recognize in my own life how often I can show ingratitude to God instead of gratitude for all that he's done. Isn't it amazing that I can complain about the electricity in a home that I don't deserve? I can complain about cars that break down when I don't even deserve to have one car, let alone two. And there are people around the world who have no cars. You know, we we went down to uh, Brazil back in August, 17 of us from the men's ministry, and we ministered in an impoverished fishing village. And we saw poverty. We saw people whose homes are nothing compared to what we live in. They have nothing. And yet I can come home and just complain about this or that that breaks. My my AC breaks. I have AC. They don't. You know, I, I have a car that can break down. I have these things that God has blessed me with, but I can show ingratitude in the face of God's overwhelming grace. And it's not just the material things. It's the fact that he has blessed me in so many ways, spiritually and emotionally with a a wife who loves me and children who I think still love me, even though they're adults now, and grandchildren who I know love me, but they love my wife more. But God is still blessing me and he's still blessing you. Here's what's amazing about this story. And and I've wrestled for a long time with reading the Bible and especially these sections of scripture. And we just see things happening one after the other. And we just assume that it's just one day, two days, three days, you know, and we, we just don't understand time when we read the scriptures because sometimes the authors don't give us a reference to time. So this chart is in your notes, but it's just, it's, it's one man's attempt to try to chart out how long did it take the people of Israel to get from Egypt to Mount Sinai and then ultimately to the promised land. And I can read it and see it happening in just days or I can see it happening in years or decades if I don't look closely. And so what this guy has done is gone back and looked at, looked at uh, the whole Pentateuch. He, he's looked at numbers. He's looked at all the passages and he's put together a timeline. And what he's found out is it takes 25 days for them to get from the Passover, which took place in Egypt, to the Red Sea, 25 days. I've always read this and thought it t- took maybe a day. You know, that Passover, they leave, They go on this little journey, doesn't take very long, and they end up, one day later, they're standing on the banks of the river. It took 25 days. 
Now, why is that important? Because 25 days is a lot longer than one day. And in 25 days, you have a lot of time to think about where you've come from and where you're going. And things happen during the journey. And so we're seeing in these chapters things happening. So it's 25 days from the day that they were delivered from the the death angel because they put that blood on the doorpost on Lentil to when they arrive at the Red Sea. And then it's going to be 51 days or 47 days before they get to Mount Sinai. See, I saw that as a much longer journey. It's interesting. I, I saw the trip to the Red Sea as a, just a, basically one day, and I got that wrong, and I saw the other trip much longer, and it's really only 47 days. This is not a long journey, right? It's 47 days is not that long. It's, it's less than a couple of months for them to get to where God has something to show them. So let's go back and look at this. It says in chapter 13, verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. That word remember is going to be incredibly important for us to remember. Out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This is is what happened after they got delivered from the death angel, when their firstborn were spared. God gives them literally food for thought. Think about this. Think about what I just did for you. Think about the fact that I saved you, not because of you, but because you were faithful enough to do what I told you to do. You put the blood in the doorpost and lentil, and it's because of the blood that the death angel passed over. Not because you're Jewish, not because you're good, not because you lack any sin in your life. No, it's simply because you did as I told you to do, and you took advantage of the plan of salvation I gave you, and you were saved, your firstborn were saved. And God institutes an annual celebration of that event. You know, we have annual celebrations. We call them holidays. Some of these holidays, I don't know where they come from, but we've got way too many holidays as far as I'm concerned. But there are certain holidays that we celebrate, Easter and Christmas, that are pretty important because they commemorate something pretty significant. That's what this was meant to be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to celebrate this feast every year at the same time to commemorate what happened. It's directly tied to Passover. So even today, Jews celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a memorial. It's a remembrance. It's so you will not forget because we tend to forget the great things that God has done for us. I personally believe that we should celebrate every year our salvation birth date when we were redeemed, that we should commemorate that, that we should, and you may not even know exactly what that date is, but pick a date and say, on this day, I'm going to celebrate that this many years ago, I gave my life to Christ, that he redeemed me, that he saved me. But what's significant here is that with this Feast of Unleavened Bread, he restarts their calendar. He completely gives them a brand new calendar, and this will be the first year or the first day of that new calendar, which is pretty significant. Here's what I wrote in devotionary. With the inauguration of the Passover, the Israelites began a new year. From that point forward, they would live their lives based on a different calendar than all the other nations of the earth. One of the things we're going to see here is that God is setting apart his people to live differently. 
And from this point forward in, in the book of Exodus, we're going to see him giving them specific ways in which you're to look different and act and behave differently than any other nation on the earth. And one of them is this calendar. That calendar would include sacred assemblies and holy days that no other people group on the planet were required to keep. And here's what's significant. This new holy calendar served as a constant reminder to the Israelites that time belonged to God and so did they. They're going to have their own unique calendar. This, this is going to be what you live by. This is, you're going to be completely different from every other nation on the earth. Every day, week, month, and year was a gift from God Almighty. God expected his people to live the entirety of their lives with a constant awareness of his law that permeated every second of their lives. Now, why this is important to me and the reason I wrote this is because what jumps out at me is that God was telling these people, you are totally different than anybody else on the planet. Not because you're righteous, not because you, you live better than anybody else, because we know they were worshiping the same gods as the Egyptians. It's that I have set you apart, I've redeemed you, I've saved you, I've freed you so that you might live differently, so that you might be a model of what it looks like for people, humans, to live in relationship with Almighty God. And we should look differently. We should behave differently. And he's going to give them the law, and he's going to give them the tabernacle, and he's going to give them the sacrificial system, all designed to help them live set-apart lives. But they first have to remember. They're free so that they might remember. And remembering is the hard part. Complaining comes easy. We're free to complain, and we do it regularly. We're just not real good at remembering, remembering all the things that God has done. So what does he do? He gives them these annual reminders. He gives them a new calendar, and on it, he begins to put these dates, these holy dates, these days that they will come together as a community and celebrate the great things that he's done. And what they're celebrating is his salvation, right? He saved them from slavery, but also their sanctification. See, I love the fact that I was saved, but I lose sight and I fail to remember that I was saved so that I might be what? Sanctified, set apart, made different, transformed daily into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, his son. See, he didn't just save us. He's in the process of sanctifying us. That's why we're still here. This is our Egypt. We are being sanctified here. We are being made more into the likeness of his son here. That's part of the process. It's not just salvation, but it's sanctification. Passover is all about deliverance. I passed over. I delivered you from death by you putting the blood on the doorpost and lintel. I gave you a substitute who died in your place. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is something completely different. It demonstrates their commitment to live differently. See, that's huge. God saved me, but he now wants me to live differently because of that salvation. He's given me a new nature. He's placed a new heart within me. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me, and he's called me to live a set-apart life. I'm not to live like everybody else. And in a certain sense, we live by a new calendar. We live by a different calendar because God has a divine calendar that has a beginning and an end. And we're living with the end in mind. We know how the story ends. We know we win. We know that God has an eternal state for us. And we live with that in mind. 
But in the, in the meantime, we live set apart lives. See, this is all what this is about. Is that he expected them to live differently. He had saved them to sanctify them. That's what the process is, is that God saves us, not so that we can just continue to live like we were living before, but so that we might live differently. They were to be a light to the world, just like you and I are to be a light to the world. Getting Israel out of Egypt has, it was easy for God. But I, I said this before, getting Egypt out of Israel was a totally different matter. That was gonna take centuries. And guess what? It's still not done yet. If you go over to Israel right now, they are not, for the most part, they're a secular nation that is not calling out to Yahweh. They're calling out to their military, save us, protect us, their weapons, their missiles, their iron dome or whatever they call it. That's what they're relying on. That's what they're trusting in. There is a small remnant of Orthodox Jews who are probably calling out to Yahweh and asking that the Messiah might come. But for the most part, they're a secular nation. They're not a light to the world like they're supposed to be right now. So what happens here? It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What does God know about his people? He knows that if he sends them one way and it's the quick way, they're gonna run into enemies along the way and they'll bail, they'll bolt. He knows his people well. It says, God led them around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. He takes them the long route. I can't, again, I can't tell you how many times, I, okay, Lord, we could have done this a whole lot quicker. We could have gotten to Z quicker than having to go through BC. You know, why couldn't we have just taken the short route? And God says, because I knew what would happen if I gave you the short route. So we took the long route, the scenic route. So it says, the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. This is a statement of the faith that Joseph had, that even though he knew he would die in Egypt, he knew that the people would eventually go home and he wanted his bones to be carried there. And they obliged. So they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is another significant uh, image that is given to us to let us know that God is providing for them and he's guiding them. He's leading them. His divine presence, his power, everything about God is with them and they can see it. They, they can see this, this divine apparition, so to speak, this theophany, this sign of God's presence is going before them. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And it's one sign, not two. These are not two separate things. It's one thing. It's how they appear during the light hours and the dark hours. During the day, what do you see? You see smoke. Because the fire's not as easily present because, present because of the sun. At night, what do you see? You see the fire and the smoke is invisible to you. It's the same image. It's the same sign. It's God going before them. And it moves. It never goes away. It never dissipates. That fire never burns out. It never runs out of fuel, almost like the burning bush. It is guiding them 
along the way, everywhere they go. That's important for us to understand because they're questioning, why did, why did we get here? How did this happen? There's no water here, or this water is bitter, or there's the enemy. What, how did we get here? And it's like, God led you here. See, I got to get that through my head, that I end up in situations sometimes where I think, how did I get here? And I can blame myself, and so often it is my fault, but guess who's with me the whole way? God. God, God could have changed my direction. God could have altered my thought process, but he doesn't, and he never leaves me. He never forsakes me. And so I find myself in a situation sometimes where I go, why? What are you doing? Why am I here? But I have to realize that God knows exactly where I am, and he has me right where he wants me, even though I don't like where I am, and I don't like what I think is going to happen. So what's going on in the story? Well, it says that they took a different route. They didn't take the northern route. That northern route would have taken them by the sea, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. They would have gone from Succoth, they would have gone along the coast, and they would have ended in a place that we know now as Gaza, the Gaza Strip. Timely that we're studying at this point because of everything going on in the Gaza Strip. This was the land of the Philistines. This was a land where God knew us. if I sent them, it's a shorter route and they'll get there quicker. It's interesting that Moses on several occasions told Pharaoh, let us go three days journey. Three days journey would have taken them basically here. Moses was thinking all along, this is the route we're gonna take. Let us go three days journey that we might worship our God. What he's saying is it'll take us about three days to get to the, the promised land and we have no intentions of coming back. See, this is the route Moses had in mind, but this is not the route God has in mind because he knows they're gonna run into the Philistines and then they're gonna bail and they're gonna run back to Egypt. So he takes them a different route. There's a lot of debate on what this route looked like, but this is the one I've kind of camped on. I've told you before, I, I no longer believe that Mount Sinai is on the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. We, we, I think mistakenly, because the names are the same, we, we assume that that's where it is. But more and more um, archaeologists believe that it's in Midian. Where did Moses come from? Midian. What mountain did he go to to get the word from God? Mount Sinai in Midian. He didn't go all the way over into the other peninsula to get a word from God. He got it here. And that's where God said, and you're going to come back here and you're gonna bring the people of Israel here. So they wander through the wilderness of Egypt. Remember, it only takes 23 days to get to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea is down here. It's the Gulf of Aqaba. Many people think it's over here, it's, it's the Gulf of Suez. But again, most archeologists, most theologians are now moving more that it's, it's, it's in this area because if Sinai is over in Midian, that's the sea they crossed. And here's an interesting fact. 1 Kings 9, 26, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Izion Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. This tells us, again, you got to study the rest of scripture, that the Red Sea is not over there. It's not the Gulf of Suez because that's not in Edom. It's the Red Sea. It's, this is the sea that they had to cross. So they're going to cross the wilderness of the Sinai. And again, why is this important? Because they've got to get out of Egypt. Who controlled the Sinai Peninsula during these days? Egypt. So they would have been in Egyptian territory all during that time. They had forts, they had outposts, 
They had to get out of Egypt, and it meant that they had to get all the way over to the Red Sea. And again, it takes them 20 plus days to get there, to get to the Red Sea. And then the Lord says, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piharoth between Migdal and the sea. This part of the story is fascinating to me. God says, don't take the northern route. That's the fast route. I'm going to take you on another route. He sends them. Now, how is he guiding them? We just read it. Pillar of fire, pillar of smoke. It's really clear. It's like a GPS system right in front of them. They're just following step-by-step instructions. And he has them go one way, and then he says, oh, by the way, go back. And they're going, go back? Why are we going back? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. I got, I got a plan for you. They go back, and they find themselves in a really bad spot. For Pharaoh's had time to think. Pharaoh's had time to really come up with a new plan. They're wandering in the wilderness. He gets news that from one of his outposts, hey, these Israelites are just wandering around. I think they're lost. And he goes, great. This gives me time to get my troops together and we're gonna go after them. And it says, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. God is not done. See, sometimes you get in a situation, you can't understand why this is happening. And this seems to be really bad timing. You gotta remember God is not done yet. God has something he wants to show you. He wants to reveal himself to you. And you may not like the circumstance, but guess what? The goal is not to get out of the circumstance, it's to see God in the midst of the circumstance. That's exactly what's gonna happen here. God's gonna get glory. See, at the end of the day, for you and me, it's always about my comfort. And yet, from God's perspective, it's always about his glory. He wants to show you his glory. And yet, they're free to doubt. This, this blows me away, that if I were God, I would not give me the, the freedom to doubt. But God's, he says, hey, Ken, I saved you, I redeemed you. And you're still free to doubt. You're still free to question my motives. And that's exactly what the Israelites are going to do. See, they've been walking for over 18 days. And then God says, go back. And they're sitting there going, what? What? Moses, are you lost? Do you, do you have any idea where you're going? And then he leads them to a place where now they're trapped because they've got a sea in front of them that they can't cross. They don't have boats. It's too deep to swim. And here comes the Egyptian army, 600 chariots. Now, if you were in that situation, you would complain too. You would gripe and grouse and moan and you would, you would let God clearly know that you're not happy and that's what they do. But what they're gonna learn is that Yahweh is all powerful. It doesn't matter how bad the circumstance is. It doesn't matter how big Pharaoh's army is and now they're free to be amazed. See, God lets you doubt, but then he shows you, you should be amazed. Over and over again, he shows him that I am greater than, greater than, greater than and he's going to show it here. And really, I can't read the story and not remember that he has them right where he wants them. How come I can see it in this story, but I can't see it in my own life? I've got you right where I want you. I've got you where you need me. You don't have any more tricks up your sleeve. You're not the brightest bulb in the box. You need me. And I don't get, I don't necessarily like that, but I want to be elsewhere than where I am too often instead of recognizing that I'm right where I need to be. This is where God wants me. I have no options. I have no hope just like they do. 
And guess what? When I have no options and I have no hope, where do I have to turn? God. Yeah. Well, you should turn before that, but the problem is we're all a little slow on the uptake. It sometimes takes these things to happen. And so God, speaking through Moses, gives the people some really wise, wise counsel that we need to hear. Here's what he says. Now, remember, you're Moses. I think he gets this from God, and he has to turn to these people who are standing with their backs to a sea they can't cross. They got the army of Egypt bearing down on them, and he says this, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. I couldn't have gotten those words out. I, I think I would have choked on the words, especially when they're already a disgruntled, unhappy people. But he's faithful, right? Fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord for which you work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today barreling down, I, I think they see another cloud of dust coming as they bear down on them. You'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. I love that line. If I, if I could retranslate it, I'd say, just shut up. Just shut up and watch. Stop complaining, stop grousing, stop moaning, and watch me work. He says, stop fearing, start trusting. That's really what he's saying, stop fearing. Fear is not wrong, guys. Fear is not a sin. It's when you remain in fear, when you continue to fear. Fear is natural. It's a natural response to a threat of any kind. But he's saying, hey, stop fearing and begin to trust. Stand firm and don't run, because I guarantee that's what they're thinking. Maybe we can outrun the Egyptians. Guess what? You can't. They got chariots. They got weapons. You can't outrun them, so stand firm and watch God work. Man, what, what a word we need to hear today in the world in which we live. Don't panic. Don't run. Watch God work, and he's not going to allow you to be destroyed. You may suffer fear. You may suffer pain. You may suffer loss, but he will not allow you to be destroyed. See, he's got them where he wants them. They don't want to be there. They would want to be anywhere else. And they're thinking, I guarantee they're thinking about, what about all our gold? What about all our silver? We, just, we walked out rich. What are we going to do when we lose all that? This, this has all gone south. And they had left confidently. We, we read this passage, and we don't think about the fact that they walked out boldly. It says the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot. That means there's at least 1 million to 1.5 million Jews leaving, if you include women and children. A mixed multitude also went with them, other people groups, including Egyptians, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. We also know, according to Psalm 105, the Lord brought his people out of Egypt, loaded with silver and gold, and not one among the tribes of Israel even stumbled. They were like weighted down with wealth that they didn't have just days earlier. And it says the sons of Israel went up in martial array. There's a lot of debate on what that means, but it, it, it really is they went out either in platoons, they, they were organized, or they went out cocky. They went out kind of arrogant. Look at our wealth, look at our power. We're free. We don't have to listen to these people anymore. And I see them as cocky and overconfident. Why? because they're now free, they're a nation, they've got wealth, they've got power, they've got a land waiting for them, they're self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is one of the greatest curses we face as Christians. When we get cocky, overconfident, look at what I've built, look at what I've got, look at all that I can do, but God wants us 
to see our weakness. He always wants us to see that without him, we're nothing. I love what the apostle Paul says. He, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Can you legitimately say that? I will boast in my weakness. I have a hard time doing that, but that's why God keeps bringing me back to the point of weakness so that at some point I will learn my lesson and go, you know what? It's good to be weak because when I am weak, then he is strong. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, that's the lesson he wants the Israelites to learn. That's the lesson he wants you and I to learn. So what happens? The waters return, cover the chariots, the horsemen, all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The Lord saved Israel. The Lord saves me on a regular basis. The Lord is always saving me from myself. And he's always gracious to save me and to save you. And what he wants us to understand is that salvation, not just when I was seven and walked down the aisle of my dad's church and gave my life to Christ, not just that, but saving that is taking place through my sanctification every day is to be remembered. Yet I'm quick to forget, quick to forget. See, at Mara, they grumbled about thirst. In the wilderness of sin, they complained about hunger. At Rephidim, they demanded water. And it takes us back to that feast. Why did God give them the Feast of Unleavened Bread? So they wouldn't forget. See, we have to remember, we have to go back. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. You'll eat it for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. Every time you celebrate this feast, this is what you're to tell your kids. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year as a memorial, as a remembrance that you may know and remember what God has done. See, sometimes we just gotta look back. Sometimes we have to stop whatever it is we're complaining about, whatever it is we don't like, to look back and see, you know, he has delivered me over and over and over again, and I have nothing to fear here. I just need to trust him. Forgetfulness always leads to what? Ungratefulness, always. And then ungratefulness is a sign of doubt. You You don't really think God can come through. And then doubt ultimately produces disobedience. You're gonna end up saying or doing something that is disobedient to the will of God. And disobedience will bring to the discipline of God because he loves you. See, that's not the pattern we need to take. We are to remember and we are to be grateful. So I close with this, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Remember all that he's done for you. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. But you've got to remember. You've got to look back and remember, not just that he saved you, but he is in the process of sanctifying you. And he does it almost exclusively through these difficult situations in which you find yourself, where he wants to show your weakness and his strength. So here's your first question. 
Try to recall one thing God did for you this past week and share it with the guys at your table. Just one thing. What's one thing where God stepped in and showed you his unmerited favor, his grace, his mercy, his love, his provision, his protection? Just one thing. Secondly, why does forgetting what the Lord has done make trusting him for the present and the future so difficult? In other words, if I forget all the great things he's done for me in the past, I'm going to have a hard time trusting him for the present and most definitely for the future. That's why we're to remember. Then finally, I want you to go back and look at that Psalm 103, 2 through 5. How can we live out these verses in our everyday lives? And I want you to close your time by blessing the Lord for all that he's done for you. Just take a few seconds to just go around the table and give one thing you want to bless the Lord for. Could be your health, could be your wife, could be your kids. Doesn't have to be major. It's just, what do you want to bless him for? Because the more we bless him, the more gratitude we show and the more we trust him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. And thank you, Father, that it's a story you want to see lived out in my life and the lives of every guy in this room, that you are a good God, you're a great God, you're a powerful God. You're a God who provides for all of our needs, but yet, Lord, like the Israelites, we can complain, we can grouse, we can moan and groan about our circumstances, and Lord, would you help us to remember all your benefits, all that you've done for us, how richly you've blessed us, that we would truly be a grateful people who worship a great God, and we show it through our actions and our attitudes and the way we turn to you, not to complain, but to give you thanks. Make us those kind of men, Father, even in this world in which we live. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.